These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. In the beginning, Oranus, Greek god of the sky, was king over the whole world. His son Cronus castrated and overthrew Oranos and took the kingship. Worried by a prophecy that his son would in turn take over, Cronus ate his children. Secretly, his son Zeus, lord of storms, was exchanged for a stone baby. And when Zeus grew up, he was able to attack his father and claim the kingship for himself. While Hesiod's great poem, The Theogony, or Birth of the Gods, has quite a bit more going on, this core tale of successive patricides comes from a truly ancient root, the great Hurrian myth cycle from at least a thousand years before Hesiod's birth. Now, in all honesty, there is a trend among certain academics and students of mythology which I am highly skeptical of. This is the trend of comparative mythology, which takes stories or characters from one culture and identifies the commonalities with the stories and characters of other cultures. In doing this, there is the danger of trivializing the inventiveness of various cultures around the world, creating the idea that certain cultures like, say, the Hurrians, or also the Romans, who are also tarred with this a lot of the time, are incapable of creativeness and merely stole from more accomplished cultures. Additionally, by over-identifying the gods of one place with the gods of another, we risk erasing the very real and valid differences between the gods. And of course, the biggest red flag for me with this over-identification is that it's often used in a very dishonest manner, either by fanatics and con men trying to push a certain viewpoint, or by earnest but naive enthusiasts who end up buying into all manner of conspiracies. The end point of the over-synchronization is often to state that all myths spring from a single source, from one true story that really happened but got garbled over the years, perhaps. There are Christians and Muslims who will do this to the Sumerian myths to prove that originally everyone worshipped their god. Ancient aliens enthusiasts are terrible at using this to prove that all civilizations got their stories from encounters with space people. Racists will use this to prove that their chosen people is superior to the presumed inferior copiers. And that isn't even to start getting into the great systematizers like Joseph Campbell, who promote things like the hero's journey and the monomyth, structures so grand and vague that they reduce all human narratives to a set of supposedly universal bullet points. Truth is, I don't even much care for the sort of religious syncretism that occurred constantly even in the ancient world. The ancient peoples were always identifying neighboring gods with their own way before modern scholars even thought to attempt it. And the ancients often did astonishingly bad jobs of picking which god was a match for which, typically focusing on a single common element and ignoring the rest. Now, this has been a bit of a rant, and honestly, somewhat a bit beside the point for many people listening. But it's my show, so I do get to rant about these things before I go and do them myself. Because you see, 
for all the many times that it's done in a sloppy and irresponsible way, the fact is that the people of the ancient world were just as interested in foreign cultures as we are today. And the practices, stories, and goods of one nation, especially a prosperous one, made its way out to foreign nations. Nowhere is that more evident than among the Hurrians, and the greatest works of Hurrian literature, the Kumarbi Cycle, shows both how the Hurrians had integrated earlier Babylonian and Sumerian traditions into their own culture, and the very success of the Hurrian stories themselves would leave an imprint among the Phoenicians and Canaanites of the Levant, and more importantly for subsequent European history, among the Achaeans of Western Anatolia, who would themselves develop into the Greeks of the Classical Age. The cycle as it has survived to us consists of five tales, or songs, all of which exist only among fragmentary copies in the Hittite capital, which again shows just how interconnected the ancient world was that the Hittites were so heavily influenced by their neighbors. I say five, but there's nothing really to say that there were not at one point more than that. In fact, it's almost certain that there were. These are mostly independent tales, even though they all deal with the same theme, that of who will hold the kingship in heaven. Though it extends to a good number of pages, the tales are all extremely fragmentary, damaged in many important places. And I can't simply just read it for you and have you even hope to understand it. Because of that, I'll be filling in gaps where I can to bring you as coherent a story as possible, even where it may pull us a bit farther than the actual surviving text allows. This is called Poetic License, and I'm fairly sure that any storyteller worth his salt in the old days would be elaborating on the basic theme of these stories as well, not slavishly holding to the text in front of him. In any case, today I'll be wholly focused upon the first of the five stories, a tale which provides a foundation for the tales to come, and also appears to have been one of the most influential both religiously and in later traditions. This has traditionally been called the Song of Kumarbi, though very recent scholarship has uncovered a fragment that indicates it may have been called the Song of Going Forth in the sense that from this beginning, the whole cycle comes forth. And you'll sometimes see it under the name of the Kingship in Heaven cycle. As is typical with these tales, both the beginning and end of the clay tablet has suffered the most damage. But what we have seems to start pretty close to the beginning of the actual story. The opening of this sort of poetic narrative is what's called a promium, in which the title is given, sometimes a short summary of the work, as well as a few pieties are offered. The opening here is a partly broken call to the primeval gods for them to come listen to our story. Nara, Napsara, Minki, Amuniki, Amizuda, Enlil, Ninlil, and a few others who are the fathers and mothers of unnamed gods. This is a pretty extensive list, and it seems that we're meant to take at least some of them as being more ancient than the characters in our story. Seeing Enlil here, the old Sumerian king of gods, is a bit odd, given that the one credited as his father in most Sumerian myth will be showing up later, implicitly making An younger than the primeval Enlil. But what this highlights is that the mythic tradition was not at any point, a single unified thing. 
Alternately, depending on how you read the fragments, this may not be a listing of primeval gods at all, but a list of gods in which the nameless, otherwise unknown primeval gods are included. Either way, the most interesting part here is that Sumerian and Hurrian gods are being freely intermixed already at the very first line of this tradition, suggesting that Hurrians saw their own faith as being fully compatible and perhaps deliberately seeing it as an offshoot of the older religion. When the story proper begins, we see that Alalu is the king in heaven, sitting upon his heavenly throne, being attended by his cupbearer An. Anlu is a curious figure, whose identification isn't completely uncertain. However, if his name is read as Al-Alu, with the first Al being related to the modern Arabic definite article, then the Alu portion is a thing which shows up in older Mesopotamian legend. But, in the Akkadian and Sumerian sources for the Alu, he's presented not as a god, and certainly not as a king of gods, but as a demon or perhaps class of demons, who lives in the underworld and occasionally comes up to the surface to either terrify the sleeping or to cause those awake to fall into comas. Alalu, in our tale, is specifically stated to have his home deep in the dark earth, so there must surely be some relation between the Mesopotamian demon of the underworld and the Hurrian god, though both are barely attested at all beyond a few passing mentions, so it's hard to say what exactly is going on here. The next character we encounter, An, is someone we've seen before. An literally means sky in Sumerian, and was the original king in heaven in the Sumerian mythos, having eventually allowed power to pass peacefully to his son Enlil. We spoke in the Sumerian context about how this likely represents a transfer in prominence in the world of real worship, with An likely being the most important god of the pre-literate period, but Enlil becoming more important with the rise of both literacy and with the coming of Nippur, Enlil's holy city, as a major religious center. By the point that this story is being written down, we may well be 2,000 years distant from this original shift, and the exact context of An, who's rarely worshipped directly now, though remains a figure of myth and in worship of other gods, appears to have been a bit garbled. In any case, Alalu is king and his cupbearer is An. Alalu is a being of the underworld, and An is a being of the highest heaven. After nine years of being king, An rebels against Alalu fights him in a battle, and defeats him soundly, casting him down to the underworld. The idea of a cupbearer usurping a king's throne is by now entrenched solidly in Near East myth, almost certainly a reference to the original tale of a cupbearer taking a kingship, that of Sargon of Akkad, who has by now had nearly a thousand years to become entrenched as a legend and reference point for all the cultures of the region. An is now king, and every king needs a cupbearer. For some reason, he selects the son of the king he had just deposed for this very intimate role. Here we meet Kumarbi, a god of the earth, a bit shallower than his father in terms of depth, for Kumarbi is related to the fertility of the soil and the harvest, while his father ruled the deeper earth. Still, 
It isn't clear why An thinks it's a good idea to select the son of his defeated enemy to be his most intimate servant. On the face of it, this seems like a bad plan. And indeed, after nine years on the throne, An seems to have thought better of his choice and attacks Coomerby for no clear reason. The battle begins with a stare-down, eye-to-eye, god-to-god, man-to-man. But An is unable to resist the intensity of Coomerby's gaze, and when he breaks away, Coomerby wrestles him to the ground. An is able to fight his way out of Coomerby's grasp, though, and begins to flee upwards, towards his home in the high heavens. But instead of allowing the king to make his escape, Coomerby chases after him, grabbing An by the foot and pulling him back down to the earth. Coomerby then bites down hard on the sky god's genitals, castrating the former king with his teeth. And to make sure that the boy parts can't be recovered, Coomerby swallows them. Coomerby as the son of a deposed king himself, clearly intends to make sure that the opposite bloodline will no longer be able to have children that can in turn depose Coomerby himself. Additionally, the abject humiliation of An likely disqualifies him from seeking the kingship again in the future. This act will prove to be the singular event that all the subsequent action comes from, the origin story of all the tales associated with the Coomerby cycle. Because the text tells us that the seed of An and the body of Coomerby united together, in the way that tin and copper come together to form bronze. Note that although An has been castrated, an assault on his very masculinity, Coomerby has in a sense been beaten even further by being feminized, that is to say, impregnated. We can't properly understand Coomerby's subsequent scheming or his eventual defeat without keeping in mind that he's been defeated already, right here at his moment of triumph in the beginning of the story, by being made into a woman, capable only of undermining and rebelling, not winning ultimate kingship. Coomerby cries out in triumph over the defeated An, but An looks at him and says, Are you rejoicing within yourself because you've swallowed my manhood? Stop rejoicing, for I've placed inside you a burden. You will give birth to five gods. First of all, you will give birth to Teshub, the mighty storm god who will ultimately defeat you and take the kingship. You're also pregnant with his younger brother, Tasmisu, who will support Teshub and aid him. Also, you have within you the god Aranza, who is the mighty Tigris River. Also, two more gods, Agilim and Kazal, who may not actually be separate gods at all. Upon hearing this, Kumarbi is horrified, feeling both the violating seed within him and the gut-wrenching terror of knowing that he's just screwed up royally. Disgusted, he spits, trying to clear himself, and seed mixed with spit lands upon Mount Kanzara, and from that point arises the Tigris River, where it still flows to this day. This mighty river was incredibly important to the Hurrians, many of whom lived in communities along the northern tributaries of the Tigris. Though this detail doesn't play much role in later events, it's still very important for the contemporary audience, not just because of the significance of the river, but also because Mount Kanzara is the seat of the gods, quite similar to Mount Olympus in Greek myth.
But still, this hasn't rid Coomerby of the majority of the seed inside him, and he's now quite solidly pregnant. He travels down to the city of Nippur, where he takes up residence for seven miserable months, where he weeps and moans and broods without once moving. At the seventh month, the gods within him are pretty much fully awake and causing all sorts of ruckus within his belly. Coomerby is screaming now that they just need to come out already, come out of his body or come out of his head, or even take the miserably painful kidney stone root out of his pee hole. Just come out already. People have asked why Coomerby goes to Nippur, when Coomerby's holy city is the Hurrian town of Urkesh. However, this only serves to reinforce Coomerby's new femininity, since Nippur is the city of Enlil, who, as a storm god and king of gods, is often identified with the Hurrian storm god Teshub, and it also has significance for An as well. In essence, Coomerby is moving into his husband's house for the pregnancy, a curious and uncomfortable mixing of gender roles meant to further beat down the villain of the story. Somewhere in the blank spots of the story, missing because of damage to the clay tablets, while Coomerby is sitting and weeping in Nippur, my favorite Sumerian god, lord of magic, craftsman, and wisdom, Ea, shows up. Out from Kumarbi's impromptu womb, the god Agilim, and maybe also Kazal, begin to talk with Ea. They complain to the god of wisdom that it's time for them to get born, but they're worried that if they come out of Kumarbi's body by whatever hole they can find, Kumarbi is likely to murder them. So, they ask Ea to strengthen Teshub, the storm god, with blessings from numerous other gods. Teshub, it seems, will be their champion in this pregnancy-related jailbreak. Now, it is possible that Agilim and Kazal are subordinate gods, more lesser brothers of the great storm god Teshub. It's also possible, through some hotly debated linguistic connections, that Agilim and Kazal are in fact titles, meaning taker of the crown and proud one, respectively, and that it is in fact our hero Teshub speaking here, though referred to by his attributes for some reason. Whatever the case, Tasmisu also appears to be speaking in favor of giving power to Teshub. Ea decides to allow Teshub to get the powers of multiple other gods, for reasons that are unclear given the extensive damage to this point in the story. An, the father of Teshub and whatever other minor gods are also in there, is quite happy with this development, and he is encouraging them to burst out of Kumarbi at the first opportunity. Stop worrying, he says, about whether you'll come out of his mouth or his head or his body or his genitals. Just pop out. It'll be great. But the gods inside are still worried and they raise a new objection. Sure, maybe Teshub now has enough power to not get snapped like a twig by Coomerby, but coming out of the mouth or the nose? Those are both really gross. Wouldn't that defile the coming king of gods? Surely he doesn't want to come out of a penis or an anus either. Getting filthy would tarnish the coming champion. 
And so it was eventually decided that someone would split Kumarbi's head like a stone, and out of the top would emerge Kazal, who may or may not be a separate subordinate god from Teshub. Though Kazal is explicitly mentioned as the Valiant King, which is a strong indicator that Teshub himself has been birthed here, the newly birthed king goes to stand by Ea, while Kumarbi himself falls out of his throne onto the floor, presumably in extreme pain, as God has just burst out of his head. Kumarbi isn't dead, though. He's crying out for his Namhe, which means abundance, and while it may be that Kumarbi is searching for an obscure ally by that name, it's also possible that he is asking where Teshub, the storm god who delivers the rain, is, since Teshub may also have been known by the title of Abundance, or Namhe. In any case, the other gods are not keen on handing over the newborn storm god. Kumarbi begins to bellow that he's going to eat the infant, because in being born to him, the infant has made Kumarbi into a woman, an unforgivable offense. Kumarbi shouts that he will smash Teshub like a brittle reed. Ea, always quick to supply a clever plan, runs out and fetches a particularly hard stone. The Kankanuzi stone, sometimes translated as basalt and sometimes as meteoric rock. This Kankanuzi stone is fed to Kumarbi in place of the newborn storm god, and when Kumarbi bites down, his teeth meet stone instead of baby meat, and he's hurt immensely. It hurts so bad that Kumarbi cries in pain. He shouts now at all the assembled gods in his throne room that he's not afraid of anyone. After all, it turns out that this child was nothing but a stone, and no one will ever challenge his position as king again. Kumarbi makes a little speech dedicating this particular stone and hurls it to the earth, likely becoming a meteor which landed in western Syria and was subsequently venerated among the western Hurrians, with this myth being particularly significant for that particular cult site. But all this about the Kankanuzi stone may have been a side note, not part of the core story, since our tale soon returns the focus back to Kumarbi himself, who is demanding that all the world make sacrifices on his behalf. The rich humans offer up cattle and sheep, while the poor men make offerings of grain. When with these offerings, his many wounds begin to heal for it's now revealed that the fate goddesses had foretold that all of this would happen to Kumarbi. They had known that he would give birth like a woman. They knew he would birth the Tigris River on Mount Kanzara from his mouth, and would birth the storm god Teshub through his head, and the hero Tasmisu through his crotch. And they knew that the god of the sky, An, would rejoice at all of this, for not only was he fathering children through Kermabi, thus emasculating his emasculator, but he was also seeing the birth of the one who would come to take kingship away from An's usurper. Now at this point there's a gap in our text, and when we return, the curtain rises on a new scene. No longer are they in Kumarbi's throne room slash birthing chamber. Instead, Teshub and a collection of other gods are standing around somewhere else. An and Ea are both there, and probably a number of unnamed participants, but the fragmentary nature of the dialogue makes it impossible to tell for certain who's speaking at any given time. 
What is clear is that An and presumably Teshub are part of a faction that's trying to rally support for destroying Kumarbi and taking away his kingship. There seems to be some concern that Kumarbi will bring ruination upon the world, or perhaps he's already brought ruination on An's house, the former of which may just be self-serving justification, and the latter probably doesn't concern anyone who isn't already on An's side in this conflict. Someone in the opposing faction, however, raises the concern that if Teshub is allowed to someone in the opposing faction, however, raises the concern that if Teshub is allowed to destroy Kumarbi, then what happens if Teshub becomes a tyrant? Who will they have to destroy the greatest of storm gods if it should become necessary? Perhaps they should abandon Teshub to Kumarbi's vengeance. Ultimately, the debate reaches no resolution and they call upon the god of wisdom, Ea, to decide the matter. It isn't clear what Ea's reasoning is, but he appears to conclude that Teshub should be made the king of the gods. This is a moment of triumph for Teshub, and he's, he sits over in his corner, he leans over and speaks to his loyal retainers. Specifically, he talks to Sheri, who is both the bull god that pulls his chariot and a subordinate god, loyal to Teshub. Hearing all the gods praise his strength, Teshub gloats, Who can come against me any more in battle? Who can defeat me now? Even Kumarbi cannot stand against me. Even Ea couldn't possibly stand against me. I threw Kumarbi from his throne just by being born. I cursed the gods who are less than me. And at some point in the missing portions of this text, I've even battled a god of war, a Hurrian version of the Semitic Zababa, and defeated him at the town of Banapi. So who now can battle against me? The bull Sherry mooed cautiously. This was a bridge too far for Teshub to be talking like this before any decision had been reached. He said, My lord, why are you cursing the gods? To curse any of them is a bad idea, but to curse Ea is the worst idea of all. Ea has a power very much unlike your power, and his power is as big as all the land. Should he direct it against you, bad things will come and you will be subjugated so low that you'll be unable to lift your head. But it seems that Teshub is far too prideful to heed Sherry's warning, and he continues to more blatantly curse Ea. In the meantime, it seems that the words Teshub spoke to Sherry were overheard by another party. It isn't quite clear who, because the name is broken, but it could be a fairly obscure goddess named Talri, who just happened to be nearby, and decided for whatever reason to go report this slanderous talk to Ea himself. Alternately, it could be Shari, a Hurrian version of Shar-Ur, who is a much more interesting proposition for a story. If you'll recall from the tale of Ninurta, way back in episodes 30 and 13, and look how much nicer the podcast listing looks now that it has episode numbers, Shar'ur was Ninurta's trusted companion as well as his weapon, a literal mace carried in his right hand for smashing faces. If it is, in fact, Shari that reports to Ea, then not only is Tessub taking attributes of the hugely popular warrior god of the Sumerians, but also this blaspheming is so egregious that even a god cannot be allowed to talk like this without repercussions. Teshub's own weapon is snitching on him, 
perhaps out of a moral duty that transcends loyalty. Whoever snitched, when Ea heard these words, he grew sad in his heart, and he went to confront Teshub, throwing his words back at him. Ea said, Do not speak curses at me. Whoever curses me does so at great risk to themselves. And you, Snitch, who is reporting this, you should know that by repeating these curses, you put yourself at risk as well. Teshub, there is a pot upon the fire, and that pot is at risk of boiling over. Teshub was on the verge of total victory. He had nearly gained unanimous consent from the other gods that he would be elevated to the kingship. And indeed, it seems he still gets a good number of votes, though calling them votes likely overstates the issue. It's probably just a consensus-based decision, not a formal election of any sort. That said, after Ea's rebuke, 50 lines are lost. Then we have a short, very fragmentary episode. Then the ending of this particular tablet indicates that there were originally at least one more tablet, if not more, in this story the entirety of which have been lost. If we were responsible academics, we would at this point stop and despair at ever finding out the end of this story. However, as storytellers, we have a few clues in some of the other parts of both the myth cycle and Near Eastern myth in general that allow us to perhaps guess at the outlines of what comes next. First off, Teshub has alienated Ea and the Lord of Wisdom now goes over to Kumarbi's side. This is a huge blow to the Storm God, and one for which he can blame no one but himself. In fact, it could well be argued that had Teshub had the sense to not run off his mouth and offend the wisest person in the room, then the whole subsequent Kumarbi cycle could have been avoided. That said, just because he's offended Ea does not mean all is lost. Other fragments indicate that Teshub was possibly confirmed by a general assembly of gods, a feature that marks him out as different from the other gods in his line. Interestingly, we have another point of comparison here, for in Babylon, we had the tale of Marduk in the Enuma Elish, where Marduk also ascended to kingship on the basis of popular acclaim, and in the city of Asher, the patron god Asher is instead claimed to be the one selected by the gods in the Enuma Elish. While the Kumarbi cycle is not the Enuma Elish, the idea that the culture's current divine king owes his position in part to popular ascent, whereas prior ones ruled solely through power, may well reflect a subtle shift in the ideology of kingship in the Middle and Late Bronze Age. Indeed, there are those who read the entire Kumarbi cycle as it relates to the shifting of power between two bloodlines, that of Alalu and that of An, as a metaphor for Hurrian kingship in general, or perhaps even to the arrival of the Mitanni kingdom in particular. Sadly, so little is known about the political history of the Hurrian cities or the Mitanni kingdom that we can't even begin to guess what sort of parallels are there, but it's an intriguing possibility nonetheless. Still, just because Teshub now has a broad base of divine political support doesn't mean he's actually the king yet. 
Still, Teshub and Kumarbi appear to be in an impasse where Teshub cannot yet seize power, but Kumarbi knows that the attack is coming and fears that he needs more strength to ward it off. And so, Kumarbi does what we'll see him do throughout this cycle of stories. He creates proxies. The exact scenario is badly damaged, but it appears that he delegates a wagon, a divinity who is also an everyday item, to procreate with the Earth Goddess. We can speculate that this wagon may be Kumarbi's chariot, and thus a masculine extension of a king who's perhaps now lacking in masculinity. Perhaps also, the wagon has been filled with Kumarbi's seed, which is gross, but not the strangest way that the Hurrian gods will manage to procreate. Whatever the case, the Earth Goddess is impregnated, and the birth is watched over by Ea, now solidly in Kumarbi's camp. Two sons are born, though we don't know who these sons are. In the next tablet, it's likely that these two sons do battle with Teshub and are defeated. And in the wake of their defeat, Kumarbi himself is pulled down from his throne, and finally Teshub is crowned as king over all the gods. Of course, this battle with the two sons and Kumarbi himself would have been at least as long as the whole tale so far, since what we have is a single tablet, and we know that we're missing the final tablet, if not more than one final tablet. However, we will conclude our tale here, confident that we've already seen the foundational parts of the Kumarbi myth upon which the later tales will build. But before we leave, something may have been ticking in the back of your mind if you're a fan of Greek mythology. The sequence from Alalu to Anne to Kumarbi of successive generations calls to mind very clearly Hesiod's Theogony, and indeed the parallels have been noted here ever since this was first translated in the 1930s. Not only do we see successive generations, with the final victor being the storm god, with Teshub and Zeus being identified here functionally as the same, but we also hit a number of narrative beats in common with the two tales. For those who have forgotten, Oranos, often identified with An as they are both sky gods, begins the genealogy in the Greek tale. He's killed and replaced by Cronus, whose exact function is unclear, but who wields a scythe, an agricultural tool, when castrating his father. Cronus then proceeds to rule over heaven, eating all his children to prevent them from usurping the throne in turn. In the Greek tale, Cronus fears an oracle, whereas Kumarbi has a perhaps much more reasonable fear that Teshub, being the son of an imposed king, will want vengeance. Indeed, the Hurrian tale is perhaps far more reasonable than the Greek, with conflict derived from a struggle for the throne between two competing bloodlines. Hesiod, however, was very concerned with establishing the fundamental unity of all the Greek gods, and in turn the various Greek tribes as part of Hellenization on the Greek peninsula. And parts of the theogony that aren't always very straightforward become more easily understood in the context of the Hurrian forerunner myth. And of course, in both myths, the agricultural god is tricked into eating a rock instead of a baby in order to allow the storm god to be properly born and grow up without interference. It would be wrong to say that Hesiod stole his story from the Hurrians. 
But what's far more likely is that the Hurrian story, adopted by the Hittites as the Hittite New Kingdom grew increasingly influenced by Hurrian culture rather than native Anatolian, was in turn transmitted over to the western trade partner of the Hittites, who we know through numerous letters and oracles by the Hittite government, called the Ahiawans. Though it was for decades the topic of much debate, modern scholars are in broad agreement that this is the Hittite name for the Achaeans, also called the Mycenaeans, who were the ancestors of classical Greeks. These Mycenaeans likely took on the tale for the same reason the Hittites did, because the power of the Mitanni warriors and broad spread of the Hurrian culture made Hurrian gods well-respected, even across the Aegean Sea. Through the course of the oral tradition, the names of the gods and places in the story were likely gradually replaced by local equivalents, until, with the rise of classical Greek culture after the post-Mycenaean Dark Age, they probably had no idea that these tales were not completely indigenous. Of course, a theory like this can never be properly proven. It could well have arisen completely natively, or as a result of Mitanni and Greeks' shared Indo-European heritage. However, as we'll see in subsequent stories, the continued parallels between Hurrian and Greek myths are strong enough that many now see them as probably related, with the Greeks owing a good deal, consciously or not, to the Hurrian tales transmitted through Hittite intermediaries. None of this is to say that the theogony, or any other work of Greek myth, is derivative, unclever, or of lesser religious status than myths that are more likely to have grown on the Greek peninsula itself. As we've already seen, the Kumarbiat cycle itself integrates many Sumerian and Akkadian elements in its own writing, yet was an integral part of Hurrian religion and a fantastic creative work of literature. But the Song of Kumarbi is only the beginning, the origin story, if you will, of what will become a whole genre of tales. These weren't all written by the same person, but followed on the same theme, much the same way that generations of modern comic book writers have elaborated on the origin tale of Superman. So join us next week as Kumarbi begins to scheme to regain the kingship bringing forth one monster after another in his many attempts to take back the throne. Thank you for listening.